0: Welcome to Riding Westward, I'm your host, Brendan Rensing. Have we talked enough about Western environments and public lands over the past three years on this podcast? Well, we have talked about them from a variety of angles, but I'm not done yet. With the prevalence of public lands in the West, and the simultaneous developments of wildfire seasons lengthening, droughts worsening, ecosystems collapsing or being unbalanced, and demographic pressures mounting across the West, we need to continue writing and thinking about the land and our relationship to it. Today we talk with Professors Erica Allen Walters and Brent S. Steele, both political scientists and public policy experts at Oregon State University, about their edited collection, The Environmental Politics and Policy of Western Public Lands. Despite my sometimes dour outlook, they and the volume's contributors balance exhibition of real crises with a healthy dose of optimism. Enjoy. For new listeners, let me take a quick moment to explain a bit about the podcast. Each episode features a conversation with authors, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, academics, or others who write about the North American West. Our goal is to not only showcase their work, but to spark curiosity among you, the listeners, to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the people who call it home. If a writer intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, Please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Redd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation, with me playing the roles of host, producer, sound engineer, and just about everything else, all of which entail tasks for which I have very little training. But I am passionate about the North American West, and all the work is well worth the excuse to read more and to talk to interesting people. At the end of this episode, I will include some more information on me and my scholarship and on the Red Center, our programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. That's right, we may want to give you money. With all this business out of the way, let's move on to today's conversation. First, I'd like to introduce to you who it is we're talking to and why. Erica Allen Walters is an assistant professor of political science and associate director of the Public Policy Undergraduate Program in the School of Public Policy at Oregon State University. Her research focuses on environmental behavior, adaption, and policy in response to resource use and conservation in an era of rapid climate change. Brent S. Steele is professor of political science and director of the Public Policy graduate program at Oregon State University, which offers the Master of Public Policy, Executive Master of Public Policy, and the Ph.D. in Public Policy. He teaches courses in science policy, public policy theory, rural policy, climate change politics, and energy policy. Their collection of essays the environmental politics and policy of western public lands was published by oregon state university press in 2020 but it is also available digitally for free and it will be as they update it in the future via osu open educational resources this collection features writers from fields of political science public policy environmental science the law and others it's an excellent primer on a variety of intersecting topics about the environment, about policy, about public lands in the West. It is powerful as a collection because together they demonstrate how interconnected our Western environmental problems and solutions are. The individual chapters are also useful as standalone pieces. This collection should be considered by anyone interested in public lands, be it the general public, professors, academics, or students. Professors Erica Walters and Brent Steele, welcome to Riding Westward.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Uh, you guys are zooming in from Oregon, both of you? Yes. And just coming yes. off of some record hot temperatures. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like Erica is out of town. I was chatting with her earlier. But Brent, you were in town for the 110 plus degree heat?
2: Yes. Yeah, it's very, very hot. <laughs>
0: Wow. My parents live up in the Northwest and, you know, they don't have air conditioning and as many people don't, but you survived one way or the other.
2: Yes. When we moved here, um, back in the nineties, uh, hardly anyone had air conditioning. And then, you know, over the years, as it's gotten hotter and hotter. People have been adding AC to their homes. And so I couldn't imagine the last couple of days without AC, uh, with the temperatures here.
0: Let's get to business. Let's talk about this anthology, which you two edited, The Environmental Politics and Policy of Western Public Lands. I saw the title and immediately thought, I need this book. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about these kinds of things a lot. And I was particularly interested because uh, I've approached it mostly through reading uh, from historians, some sociologists, journalists, and others. And the contributors in your book and yourselves are from Uh, some different disciplines. So I'm excited to compare kind of differences in approach. Can you tell us about how this collection came to be? What was the impetus? Sure,
1: well, in 2001, a colleague of ours, uh, Dr. Charles Davis at Colorado State University published a book um, on the environmental politics and policy in the West as well. Um, And we approached Chuck and asked him if he was wanting to do an updated version because a lot of us in the field use his book Um, in our classes that we teach. And he said, no, but go ahead, kind of gave a blessing to Brent and I to to move forward with our idea to to then uh, to kind of do an updated version. Um, So Brent and I came up with the idea that it would be great to sort of get some of the leading experts in the field and in different disciplines to come together and put together a really good anthology for our students to be able to use, but that's also readable to people maybe not within the discipline. Um, So it's a very accessible book, and it's one that stands alone chapter by chapter, so you don't have to read it all the way through from the beginning to the end. You can kind of pick and choose if you have chapters you wanted to read. Um, Because mostly we felt that the West had changed significantly, and we wanted to capture that um, and identify what's going on within the realm of environmental policy in the Western
2: U.S., Uh, And one of the unique features of this book, too, is that not only is it published by Oregon State University Press, but it's also available open source for uh, people to read and to use in their classes if they'd like.
0: That's great. I'm actually just now noticing on the back cover, it says co-published with OSU Open Educational Resources. I didn't even realize that before. That's really great. Are there big updates from um, Chuck's previous book to what you guys are doing now You know, as we're you know, a full 20 years into the 21st century. What are some of the big topics that you wished was in that previous volume that you wanted to have updated?
2: Well, well, one thing Eric and I did was ask everyone to try to put a climate change perspective on each chapter, which really wasn't in the previous book because that really wasn't much in the public dialogue at the time. And so uh, given we started out talking about the record heat, <laughs> In uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, it's a very very important topic, and of course, you know, with uh, we had uh, unprecedented wildfire last summer also in uh, Northern California, Oregon, and Washington, um, and I which I witnessed yesterday. I did a float trip down the Mackenzie River in Oregon, which is a, a, a beautiful a pristine river. It's where Eugene, Oregon, gets its water supply. And as we went down the, the river, we went by Blue River, which was a small rural community that no longer exists. And then down to uh, Vida, another small community with about half of Vida was gone. And so you just see these burned out structures. So um, obviously with uh, increasing drought and climate change, it impacts pretty much every single topic we have in the book.
1: At that end, I think that we were we're very cognizant of the fact that the West is changing rapidly um, and that there's so much more population growth coming to the region. There's a lot more challenges to public lands. Um, there's challenges to indigenous rights of, the, of lands as well. And we wanted to sort of capture that um, in the context of, as you see, you know, sort of this old West narrative and the new West narrative and sort of what's gonna be happening for the next West. Um, you know, what do what we, the grander sort of ideas sort of thinking about what do we want the West to look like um, in the ideal sense and then maybe in the reality of what, what do we think will happen if we sort of continue on this trajectory.
0: That's great. I'm about to publish an anthology on the 21st century West, thinking about late 20th century Western histories, and then kind of pulling them, updating them for the the first 20 years of the uh, 21st century. And this was kind of, a a lot of these bigger ideas that you guys are thinking about were in our minds as well, as we workshopped papers, thinking about where is the West been recently? Where is it today? And what does that mean for moving forward? As I look through the contributor list, I see political scientists, peop, uh, people involved in public policy, uh, there are sci- scientists, kind of environmental scientists, um, I think there's a couple lawyers, so people involved in the law, uh, and as I note, noted, uh, at least here on the podcast, most of our engagement with public lands has been from more of a historical perspective, and I'm curious um, about disciplinary approach and what are questions you think that you and your contributors may have asked differently or, or what are different questions that you would have asked as opposed to a historian say um you know looking at public lands issues how do you approach this differently than than some of us
2: in, in the humanities and elsewhere well uh, it has a as a title suggests a distinct uh, politics orientation and uh and one of the things there's always been conflict in the West, political conflict over public public lands and lands management and endangered species, forests, uh, water. But uh, one of the things that uh, we we focused on here was the the different interests uh, that have been involved that have different perspectives on things, and then. Um, a little bit more of a, I, and I would argue we, it's, there's uh, uh, a couple, uh, Mark Brunson, for example, who wrote the, the piece on uh, rangeland policy is more of an environmental sociologist in there too. So we tried to look at things kind of, a, and as a horse historian would do, a broad perspective. Uh, but I think the, the focus here was on conflict and, and what's going on now and what might happen in the future as we have, you know, increasing drought and we have, uh, change in uh, uh, urbanization in the west we have these cities are growing and becoming uh, much different than what they they used to be and for example you know salt lake has had a major change politically over the last couple decades uh you know, you know tucson phoenix um, uh, las vegas and so uh, we have different views on how management of public land should take place increasing conflict and then we have the backlash that we talk about too and one of the the things that happened this year is we had a uh, t- two elections where uh, for example you know, we had seven rural counties in Oregon considering joining Idaho <laughs> instead of staying in Oregon and uh, uh, as, a, as an indication of the, the conflict and then we had the the occupation of the maller uh, Wildlife Refuge and there's potential uh, conflict coming in again well there is continuing conflict in the Klamath River Basin but it could get, very dicey, uh, very um, uh, polarized, even more so with with uh, shutting off of the irrigation water to, to save uh, fisheries.
0: Yeah, and the Bundys the are back up there organizing in the Klamath Basin, yeah. right?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I know that historians, we like to think that our work has relevance to the present, and sometimes we bring our work all the way to the present, but often it's only like in an epilogue, or some concluding thoughts. You know, the more presentist we get, the more uncomfortable we often get. And I really—that's one reason I do like playing with some of these other disciplines. Where you guys are—I mean, the, the, the present is you know where you live, and you're very comfortable thinking out loud about it, and not prognosticating about the future, but but looking forward and trying to project where we might be headed or things that we might need to do differently.
1: And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to go with the open source as well, because we have the ability to, to change chapters, to update, to do anything like that um, you know, every year if we wanted to. And I think Brent and I wanted that flexibility to be able to, because as soon as you write things and as soon as administrations change or something like that, you know, suddenly it's a game changer. And we want to make sure that that five years down the road, we're going to be able to capture where we are at that time versus where we were when we wrote the book.
0: That's a, a great feature, then, of having this open source. Um, you mentioned that you use this in classes for students. And um, I'm curious about audience. I I know who historians write for. I know who journalists write for. Uh, and this is a podcast about people who are writing about the West or writing for the West. So for political scientists, public policy people, um, outside of this book, and then we'll pivot to the book, like. What are the audiences that your disciplines generally write for?
2: So this book was more publicly accessible than some of our other work. And so we were gearing it towards uh, kind of senior level, junior, senior level undergraduates or graduate students um, and the general public. So we we tried to uh, to write, you know, to make it accessible. And, you know, we we uh, there are a variety of different disciplines in here that write differently. So we we did a had a little bit of editing to try to make kind of at that same level of accessibility, um, but that's kind of the, the the general orientation you know for for this particular book. And I, you know, I and I, you know when Eric was talking too that you know we we had the open source so we can update it. So uh, just a, an example of that. Um, a couple of years ago, I was writing an NSF grant to look at mitigation and planning for wildfire in the West, and we had we we actually have the Wasatch Range in in our in our project. We've got a uh, you know Wenatchee area up in Washington, and we included the Southern Willamette Valley. And the first time we submitted our grant, it got rejected by NSF because they said there isn't wildfire in the Willamette Valley because there hadn't been a, a history of it. And so we just we finally, yeah, we just, we put, so we put in a case study of central Oregon, instead around Deschutes from Bend where Bend is. And so we got the grant and this is with faculty at university of Oregon and Portland state university. And then uh, last summer happened. And so we, we wrote back in and said, uh, change of plans here. You know, NSF, we're gonna go back and, and look at the Willamette Valley because uh, the winds and the, uh, the drought conditions were unprecedented. And so the, having open source with the the, Print version, we can't go back and make revisions to that, but with the open source, we can.
0: Are you often writing for um, policymakers? And I think we hope that it ends
1: up in policymakers' hands, and we certainly put it in that direction so that it's it's capturing, you know, again, sort of from from the different perspectives what's going on and how we need to start thinking about these issues that we see as intractable, but ways that we can maybe hopefully move forward on addressing some of them because. Climate change is not going to improve, but we know. I mean, unless there is large-scale efforts to do so, but we know that we can start thinking more about water, about fire, about all of these things that are happening in the West, and hopefully start at least mitigating some of the um, current and impending problems that is that are arising from those things.
2: Yeah. So the uh, the conclusion of the book is aimed at the public at large, but but policymakers, and we talk about lessons learned in the book, but ways to, to try to overcome some of the polarization and conflict. And so there's a, a theme, you know, in Oregon's kind of known for its watershed councils and for collaborative governance approaches to, to natural resource uh, uh, decision-making and policy-making. So with the pitch there is definitely towards uh, policymakers and the public.
0: What do you feel like the policymakers or the general public are missing? What is it just the background information? Is it that they're missing someone who can translate uh, science and data into something digestible what what's the missing component to that makes these problems not just intractable because I mean because climate change isn't going to go away but we seem to be having the same fights that we about public lands that we were having 50 years ago 30 years ago 10 years ago so what's missing from the dialogue and how might this book or the other things that you and your contributors are writing um contribute to to solving that
2: well i can i take a shot at this the uh so i just did a uh uh plenary you know, with a, a conference an international conference on um uh, they were focusing on wicked problems and so we that's one of the things that the public lands management in the west is it's a wicked problem i mean it cro- cuts across multiple jurisdictions it has multiple interests involved um and it requires kind of a big picture approach so one of the approaches we've been uh using at oregon state university is what we call ktans k-t-a-n and it's knowledge to action networks and it's trying to get scientists out of their laboratories (laughs) and working directly with communities uh, and all the stakeholders in the community on problem solving and trying and getting the the communities, the stakeholders involved in the science process, and then having the scientists try to help integrate the science in a fashion that's understandable to the the layperson. Um, and even in, in these teams are, are interdisciplinary too. So we try to involve social sciences. So we focus on process, uh, not just the science, because there's more than science that's get that's important in these in these. Uh, in these collaborative processes, you know, there's a his people have a his understand the history there, what the issue's been like, um, uh, how the resource has been managed over the past, and so that's kind of one attempt, and that's trying to bring in a big picture kind of perspective at, at the local level, uh, at a community level or watershed watershed level.
1: Well, and I think if you look at public surveys in the West, you see high levels of support for conservation of lands for water protection, for various species protection. And that kind of spans the political spectrum. And so I think, really, it's it's hoping that we start moving a narrative forward where we do have some shared values around the West and, and around public lands and around use and, um, and conservation. And I think that that's something that needs to be communicated more clearly, that we do have Um, we do have overlap in in sort of how many of us would like to see the West um, still be in the sense that we can go out and go hunting or fishing or we can go backpacking or whatever those things are, or just knowing that it exists for species protection. I think that those things do transcend a lot of our political differences. And so I think it might be really important that we start constructing a narrative around that, um, where we do recognize that there are some pretty... pretty deep-seated shared values about the West and the Western identity.
0: That's that's a powerful statement that there's more consensus than we perhaps realize and it's untapped and it just needs to be uh, yeah, given a narrative so that people can see, oh, we're on opposite sides of this political spectrum and the rhetoric we use to talk about public lands is often so opposed, but when we strip some of that away, there's actually a lot of shared values and things that we're all interested in we might uh, disagree about how to fix it but uh, we, we have some shared concerns uh, we had a, a big wild, a, not a big but a wildfire just in the hills right above my my neighborhood last it was october or november it was like two or three days before the temperatures dropped and it started raining it was just the worst timing of it you know just could have waited but i was standing with some of my neighbors watching the fire uh, and these are neighbors that i know i do not see eye to eye with politically. And, but we were all lamenting the same thing, right? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a heavy trail user. I use the trails that were getting burned, they don't. But we both were concerned, you know, uh, about what was going on. So I like, uh, that's a very optimistic, hopeful idea that there's more consensus than we think. As you teach this to students as a unique audience, and maybe specifically uh, for you, Brent, you've been engaged with students for a, bit, a little bit longer than Erica, I think. Do you see a change in the new generation of how they think about public lands and these things?
2: Yeah, I'm. that's what makes me um, optimistic. <laughs> Young people really are, care about communities. They care about people. They seem to be a lot more open minded about uh, different issues. They are very much focused and worried about the future. Um, and what climate change means for our our, our beautiful uh, public lands and spaces in the West, um, and so uh, it's I, it's been easier to engage them at least uh, here where I've, I've been at Oregon State University. And previously at Washington State University, it's, it's it's never been easier to engage them and to have at the one time great concern about climate change and the things happening in the world right now, but at the same time the the possibilities of of coming together and and um, and solve and problem solving.
0: Well, that's hopeful as well. Maybe the kids are all right. <laughs> kids are all right. <laughs> I, I'm I'm constantly impressed with the students I work with here, and I say if I if I was an undergrad today or even a grad student, I wouldn't have a chance um, stacked up against some of them. Well, maybe we should turn to the book itself. I know this is a little bit awkward. And it's one of the reasons I haven't had, I haven't featured an anthology before because it's weird to ask the editors to come on and to talk about the in, the contributors or to put words in their mouths. It puts you in a little bit of a odd situ, uh, uh, situation. So we'll keep this maybe kind of in the most general of terms, but you um, you divide this into four parts kind of thematic groupings, and I want to kind of talk about each of them in turn, and I'm curious about how you landed on these groupings. Um, The first part is the changing West, then you have forest, wildfire, and water, Uh, a third part, wilderness and wildlife, and then the fourth and the longest section, development, sovereignty, and conflict in the West how did you come to these divisions? Are these something that you started with or you solicited lots of contributions, then sat with them and moved them around and to see where there was overlap and shared themes? How did this organization come?
1: Yeah, it was really the latter. We we, uh, knew what we wanted content-wise in the book, and it wasn't until we sort of started going through the chapters various times that we Sort of identified ways that they would sort of hang together or group together well and then we came up with our with our different sort of uh, subsections within the book that that um, kind of stuck a little thematically um where you could see this the thing the connectivity between the different chapter issues
0: and many of these you could move to other sections and they would fit equally yes. as well right there's so much overlap. yes yeah
1: it seems more manageable to break it up into four sections versus here's a big here's a huge uh list of chapters to read um and it sort of identifies like again way issues that do that do kind of naturally um hang closer together but as you said any of these chapters could go in any part of the book and it would be it, they would fit
0: let's th- talk about the first section here uh the changing west um and you, this opens with some discussions of Old West and New West and what it is that's been changing. And actually we'll get to your conclusion because you guys in the chat and the conclusion that you co-wrote, you kind of return to this. Um, and uh, Mark Brunson, who you already mentioned is in this section, he is on, um, I brought him onto the advisory board of uh, the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. And he was the one who tipped me off to your book. Um, and I, I love Mark. Um, What are some of the big things um, that are changing so rapidly in the West that political scientists and public policy people need to be thinking about in terms of public lands?
2: Increasing urbanization, um, people moving, cities growing larger, um, bringing in people with different kinds of value systems uh, that are more amenable to maybe environmental uh, uh, concerns. Uh, There's also been, you know, uh, economic change uh, in the West as the economies have moved away from natural resource extraction to uh, more service, uh, service sector um, employment, which once again attracts a different kind of person with a different kind of uh, value system and then, um, in. know. A lot of the left, West, uh, there's been a decline and there's some areas where rural areas are growing, but primarily a lot of areas, rural areas are declining. Young people are moving out and it's changing uh, political uh, uh, dynamics in the states. Um, also, uh, you know, to keep coming back, I think the climate change is changing <laughs> how we're thinking about things with, uh, you know, seeing uh, Lake Mead started going to uh, historic lows, uh, I drove, Erica did did too. I'd be interested to hear what she said, but I I drove down to to pick up my son in last November and drove, I haven't been over Lake Shasta in a long time, but I only, I saw you drive over several arms. I didn't even see the lake. Um, It was so low. So we got some, um, a lot of, uh, you know, environmental change going on and demographic and political change. Uh, Erica?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, and I think that, I think that, just to even touch on this, just visually, I think people are very aware of sort of seeing things that are significantly different from 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, I also just did the I-5 drive, and on that drive back, there was virtually no snow on Mount Shasta, which is unusual for this time of year. Um, There was a wildfire right outside that area, so we sort of hit all these things, and as we continued uh, north, there was mass power outages from the excessive heat. So, you know, things are sort of happening, and I feel like they're You know, this it's happening more frequently. That we're it's it's hard to sort of avoid um, discussions around what's going on and how we're going to accommodate or mitigate or adapt to to these changes. Um, But as Brent said as well, I mean, I think I think climate change is really the 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 big one, and in layered with you know the political issues that continue around challenges to public lands and these things like as at a time where we're trying to protect more public lands for a multitude of reasons for. For better water quality and to protect water resources, or to protect uh, forested areas or endangered species, there's more challenges to these areas as well. Um, so we're sort of there's these multiple things that are that are you know kind of creating more conflict. Um, and there's always been conflict, but I think it's more pronounced now that we have this additional layer of of climate change changing changing the the scope in which we're you know of, of what we're what we're talking about essentially.
0: It's part of the tension also, and everything is changing so rapidly, but there are certain segments of the population, certain public lands users who don't want to change as well. They they have livelihoods in ways they've been using public lands for years, and they want to continue doing it as such. Isn't this kind of part of the, I mean, I relate the foundation of this tension between the new rapidly changing West and then perhaps some old West peoples and communities that are still around, right?
2: Yes. Yeah. We find that, um, you know, giving will give you an exa- example of that. We had a, we, we are, we had a project, a, NSF, a previous NSF project, uh, in, uh, central Oregon and we focused on, uh, Deschutes County, which had been, which is growing like crazy. And, you know, we have a amenity industry growing, lots of young people moving in, uh, changing rapidly. And then we had the Klamath, uh, basin in the study too and um that uh, climate basin is kind of a little bit stagnant economically and uh we have a lot of uh, people that still want traditional uses and we tried to do you know future scenario building with with key stakeholders and then Ben, we got some agreement on what you know there's disagreement how to get there but what what they wanted to see at the end i mean what they want public lands to look like Whereas in the Klamath, a lot of the people were, were talking about twenty years ago, when, you know it was with timber harvests were high, uh, and uh, uh, and the the economy was different. So yeah, very there's very much so that's leading to the conflict.
0: And perhaps this is where you know the work that you're doing will help. Bring people together, like you were saying, getting stakeholders in the room together to. Uh, to talk, Uh, one of our law professors here um, took part in a, oh no, maybe it was, no, it was a political scientist Um, and maybe one of our law professors, maybe they're both there, but they took part in a group that went down to bear's ears. Uh, This was maybe three or four years ago, but I don't remember who it was that organized it, but they had gotten people from all sides of that debate and took them all out camping together and literally sat around the campfire and talked about bears' ears, and uh, you know, the protection of cultural resources and accessibility to you know natural resource extraction, all kinds of things. And they said it was like it was profound that just getting people together to talk was, you know, seemed to break down a lot of barriers. People who have just been yelling past each other, you know, online or in public forums or in politics. Uh, when they actually talk, there's actually they actually do have something to talk about. And it turns out they actually haven't been talking to each other. They just been talking past each other.
1: Yeah, I think that that happens a lot. I think that we we talk at one another and we don't listen. and I think that that's a big issue. um and that's why I think you know Brent and I talk about this when we talk about this notion about changing a narrative, you know about having a discussion and being able to identify commonalities. I mean, it's fine, you know we're in a country where we can agree to disagree and that's that should happen and it does happen, but there should also be an opportunity to come together and and say, we, you know, identify the things that we recognize as being important to maybe all of us or to most of us that we want to work toward those, those goals. Um, maybe the, maybe the ways of getting there are different, but the idea is the same.
0: At the end of the day, though, there are some things that simply can't really be compromised on, right? And in, in this, uh, in the second section of the book, you have some chapters on wildfire, which kind of impact everyone, at least. It, they didn't used to impact Corvallis, but they do now, right? Um, and the Willamette Valley. Um, but the other, there's a chapter in there about water, about the Colorado River, right? And conflict in the West often comes down in the end to water. And at the end of the day, there, there isn't really room for compromise, it seems, when is water going to be used uh, for kind of residential consumer use or for industrial or agricultural use, which is a bigger per- people. A lot of people think, "Oh, I need to, you know, turn the water off and I'm brushing my teeth," which is great. Um, but when you look at the graphs of who's using most of the water, agriculture is actually often bigger than people realize, and industry. Um, and in the end, especially with declining water resources, right? We've seen Lake Mead and Lake Powell. Um, it is a finite resource. It is a zero-sum game. Um, there's only so many pieces of the pie to divvy up. I don't know what the answer to that is but resources are finite and the disagreements on how to use them I, I don't know how some of those go away that's not really a question it's um, more of a comment <laughs> well,
1: brent and I just uh, we did a, a large uh, survey project a, a couple of years back and we just wrote a paper on on water policy and the rest is just an example and you know what we found you know going through various water policy, um, options people had to, you know, sort of state their level of agreement with, we found across the four states that we surveyed that there was pretty strong levels of agreement with all of the water, water policy support for all of it. So I think I think that there is, people are aware, at least when we think about water, I think that, that there's a growing awareness that, you know, we know when we don't have water, we can see it. We know when there's water quality that's affected because of water scarcity or, or times of drought. Um, and so sort of a sense of like something needs to be done to to manage our water resources, um, to protect either endangered species, to protect drinking water, to protect industries use whatever that might be, there seems to be pretty broad-based support for that.
2: And you I, I noticed too, you just saw this in California with uh with agriculture that they, they have, you know, grow a lot of rice, which is heavily watered. Uh, dependent. and uh, in the survey that we did, we asked a bunch of series of trade-off questions uh, between food water and energy and and there's a lot of support for moving to more uh, drought tolerant agriculture and uh, among all all four states. and it's California, Oregon, Washington and idaho, um versus using water intensive uh, uh, plants like like rice. so there there was a quite a bit of a, agreement. There's a little uh, difference between the states too. California and, has been subject to drought a lot longer than the other other states and so there's a little bit more support for dam building and such in, in pipelines there than than the other three states because the other three states often think they might be the target of California's pipeline so because uh, that plays into our politics too but, but there was a lot of consensus uh, among publics uh, in all four states.
0: I mean I've also read that almonds take and a tremendous amount of water to grow almonds but are people going to stop drinking almond milk you know or yeah um, <laughs> Didn't ask i mean I, you know we, <laughs> consumers have you know consumers can speak with what they buy and don't buy right and right. um this often also impacts populations so unevenly um those that are, are are wealthy if the price of almond milk goes up if the price of water goes up they can afford it they're fine it's lower socioeconomic segments of society that bear the brunt if energy costs go up and you know they can't afford AC anymore. You know, there there are certain populations that suffer it that suffer unevenly than others, right? Yeah. Absolutely. yeah.
1: But I also think when you when you mean you know, just to stick on the example of almonds, I don't think that most people are terribly aware of how much water or how much energy or how much whatever goes into the products that they're buying. If you talk You know, if you if you're sort of speaking specifically, like, would you stop watering your lawn to conserve water? Oh, yeah, that's that's a very tangible, a very notable thing. But thinking about even the the things that we purchase, our clothing, our food, whatever that requires an excessive amount of water and energy, it's not generally. I would I would guess it's not generally on on sort of most people's minds. But unless you connect it to something, as you're suggest, as you're saying as well, like yes, if the price goes up on something, you're you're going to become very aware. That oh, this is because we're using a scarce resource, and and it's much harder to produce and to, to have availability for.
0: I think that's probably the key moment in which people do become aware. It's when it hits their pocketbook, right? We don't know where our food and clothing comes from, gen generally speaking. Um, I'm, I'm I have a kind of a, a future book project idea to do some local history, water history here along the Wasatch Front, because uh, I was thinking about. Um, uh locally we have there's canals and reservoirs and stuff but some of the canals have been buried and there's this one paved trail by my house called the Murdoch Canal Trail and it's this really great long paved trail that kind of goes behind these neighborhoods and it used to be an open canal it used to be visually people saw oh here's my water and now it's buried or the aqueducts and pipelines coming down from the canyons and from the reservoirs are buried and people visually don't see it and don't think about uh their water in ways that they used to. And you go look through old records from the late 19th century, That's all they're talking about is water, right? And, you know, doing repairs on the pipeline and it's in the papers and it's in public discourse because they were just much more aware of its scarcity. And now we just turn on the tap and it's there. So I think, yeah, becoming, become raising public awareness of these issues is key.
1: I mean, I think it's really interesting because we sort of do, we have the Canary coal mine, right? We have parts of central Valley, California. That's, that is essentially, you know, starting to descend each year because they're drawing so much groundwater out, you know, there's these things that are happening, but sort of just not, you know, it may in part because there's so, m- there's so many environmental issues that maybe it sort of becomes very much like, what do you, what do you grab onto, to think about, and to try to, to, um, to maybe try to invest in a way in in improving that situation. But yeah, I I think the fact that we are, um, you know, that these really significant events are occurring, but we're not sort of seeing, you know, strong policies to sort of address that, um, is that sort of a representing a disconnect about what's going on.
0: That is a problem that, when I lived in Nebraska, we were talking about the Oglala Aquifer a lot. And how on the southern plains, you know, the water tables dropped hundreds of feet and, you know, there's wells that simply don't, and there's counties that have said like zero withdrawals from the aquifer, we're just not going to pull anymore because it's not there. Um, And now that I live here in Utah, it's a whole different set of environmental crises that I'm thinking about. And it's interesting that, you know, your point, Erica, there's just so many uh, crises and it's hard to to think about just one or to pin it down. And I wonder if the public sometimes tunes out because like, well, well, what can I do? There's just so much. But one interesting thing that a lot of your chapters do um, internally within the chapters, but then when you read them together is how interrelated Uh, So many of these things are, so you can't think about water resources without thinking about agriculture, without thinking about wildfires, without thinking about the wildland urban interface and growing demographics, like it's all interconnected, which uh, it's a little overwhelming to try to take it all on, especially for the general public or for policymakers who want to make a discrete, carefully defined policy that, you know, that they can get voters to uh, approve uh, or to, you know, to to re-elect them because they put forth this one policy. They want something, a nice little package, and that just doesn't exist.
1: Right, and I think that when it is happening, then you have policy that exists in a silo, doesn't necessarily consider the other things that you just mentioned. So you can, you can develop maybe some great policy that's going to address a particular issue, but then has negative consequences for another issue. And then, so without sort of that, both interdisciplinary and sort of ways of thinking and also ways of of integrating policy together, it's going to be really challenging to to address these and and overwhelming. And and I think Brett and I are incredibly cognizant of the fact that the field in which we work is not in one, excuse me, where you know people are gleefully picking up the book and reading through it and thinking, great, I have a solution. I know what to do. It's really more to to continue the, the conversation and how do we start thinking about at least getting to a place where we can Start talking more comprehensively about
0: policies in the West. Yeah, we have to start these conversations and get get everything on the
2: table so we can even think about it. Yeah, there are some uh, interesting positive things going on too. The uh, so, for example, in Oregon here, a lot of uh, and we have a colleague Eric who has been involved in this, um, and we had a PhD student doing research on this. The uh, a lot of irrigators now are we had you know open uh, open canals which you know, get evaporation and such and so they're starting to. Bury their canals or the, the ditches now, and then they're putting in uh, low-head hydro, so that they're they're not only using the water to you know to grow uh, to grow food, but also producing their own energy. And then they're taking the uh, the residues, like the stalks and stuff that are left over after after food production, and changing it into biofuels. And so they're closing kind of closing the gap there between water and energy. But they're doing it because it's you know it has really good environmental outcomes, but it's saving them a lot of money. And so, so it's kind of a win-win-win. And as uh, as more and more irrigators are adopting this, we see other irrigation districts coming in and looking at the at the progress being made. And so, um, so there's a lot of uh, positive things going on too. And in the uh, renewable energy uh, is another chapter that we have in the book. So there's a lot more renewables going in wind. Um, Interestingly, there's here's another one of these conflicts. So they the state, you know, so Oregon, Washington, California have been very aggressive in pursuing uh, our portfolios for greenhouse gas reductions, and so there's been encouragement of adopting renewable energy. So some farmers in the uh, Willamette Valley here, which is uh, you know Oregon has really stringent rules on land use for forests and for agriculture, but a lot some farmers started putting solar on their lands. And uh, which then takes some of the land out of production. And so it was kind of an un people didn't think about, you know, the once again getting back to the complexities issues. And so the a couple counties have used uh, Oregon's land use laws to prohibit further solar to keep the land into egg production. And so so you start looking at these things. We yeah, you know, we talk about cascading events when it, when it comes to uh, uh, management of public lands and stuff. And that's just a, that's not public land, but that's just an example. Of if you're, you're pursuing one policy objective and it ends up uh, impacting another policy objective,
0: but we'd be naive to think that it'd be anything other than that. There's always going to be unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, but I think especially in the realm of politics the those complexities cascading events the nuance of all this that's not convenient and um, politicians rarely like to acknowledge that because the public um, has a hard time you know grappling with that which again underscores the importance and the value of getting this on the table so people can think about it critically and it can have more um, comprehensive
2: ways yeah. So one another thing too that this last summer uh, we were we got we're doing research and Eric and I are doing a project on this right now too. in wildfire, a lot of you know urban folks in the West were cons were you know were concerned about wildfire. They hear about wildfire, but it, it doesn't really affect them. Well, last summer, <laughs> you know, we focus on wildfire, but we never focused on smoke. And all of a sudden, the smoke came in. And you're stuck in your house for a week plus, and you can't go outside. Uh, wildfire became very real for you. So, uh, so the so you know the wildfires were horrible, destroyed a lot of land, uh, destroyed cities. At the same time, the smoke I think impacted our, our legislature. Actually, took a lot of action on wildfire, which they normally wouldn't have because the Portland and Eugene and in Salem, the capital, were, where, you know, in, inundated with smoke for a week. And so, and I know the uh, same thing happened in Seattle. So.
0: Yeah, we were all breathing California forests and British Columbia forests. You know, the, the smoke was, I mean, you can look at those satellite, those moving satellite images, and it was astounding um, yeah. how thick and how far the the smoke spread across the West last not just last summer, but, you know, yeah every summer.
2: Yeah, increasingly.
0: It hurts me to skip over uh, this third section on wilderness and wildlife because it's the one I've been thinking about the most from my own work. But um, uh, because we are running out of time, I did want to push kind of towards you guys' conclusion. And and because this is also one of the pieces that you guys wrote, you talk in this conclusion, which you entitled the Old West, the New West, the Next West. Which I like that. I hadn't. I've I've ta- I've used Old West, New West a lot. But I've never talked about the Next West. But you talk about the disconnect between rural communities and policymakers and how rural communities who are often the public land users feel threatened sometimes by those making policy. You have a little uh, table where you talk about two conflicting natural resource management paradigms that you see through all of the the chapters in this book, um, a lot of things coming down to these set of conflicting uh, points. Uh, one resource management paradigm being uh, biocentric, as you put it, and you know environment, wildlife, ecosystems, and the other being anthropocentric, thinking about people. Maybe we can close out with a discussion about this. Um, talk to us a little bit about these two paradigms and, and the conflicts they create and then you know maybe where, where the solutions are to try to find a compromise and consensus
2: between them. Well, I can start. Um, I can start out with an example from my childhood. Um, so, my uh, grandparents pretty much raised my myself and my two sisters, and um, and they uh, would take us out on we hunting and fishing. We we're always going outdoors, camping all the time. Um, this is in Eastern Washington, Northern Idaho, and uh, they would tell me, you know, so they're of a different generation, uh, the greatest generation. People kind of were more, you know. Through World War II, and they would always tell me that uh, the, all these lands were put here specifically for humans, and they were very religious. So these uh, God gave us the right to manage these lands, and they're here for humans. So very, very anthropocentric. At the same time, um, they they uh, they wanted clean water to go fishing in. They wanted a place where they can go hunting, and you know they weren't they weren't rich, so it was often on public lands, Forest Service lands uh or BLM lands and so uh and then you know I I'm c- coming from a different generation with different experiences and so I was kind of in developed like most young people at the time uh kind of a more uh, which which you see in in our laws EPA and stuff like that more of a biocentric perspective that that we're all here and and that animals have a right to exist whether humans use them or not um, And so we used to have, when I was in college, the dinner table fights. I go visit my grandparents, I absolutely adore and love, but we would have, we would agree on the ends, but not the purpose or the means. And so I think that's kind of a uh, an example of that. Um, uh, I'm gonna, if I could go, Eric, and give an example where you can rectify these. So. uh, so when the, during the occupation of Malheur Wildlife Refuge, which I like to point out, the people that came and occupied were from outside Oregon. They were not Oregonians. Okay, and so when they came and occupied at the t- at that time, we had uh, we had masters and PhD students doing research on renewable energy, water, and endangered species in that area, and they were doing research uh, before uh, the occupation, during the occupation, and after the occupation. And uh, one of one of students was studying there, were, there was proposed wind farm that they were studying there was some community opposition to it. Uh, another one was just looking at at water uh, and climate change. And the other, the third student was looking at sage grouse, which is is in that particular area. Um, and so um, what what had been happening in in that Malheur area is that they have a collaborative in place. And the collaborative has all the local ranchers on it. It's got the Paiute tribe, uh, Native American tribe involved in it. It has forest service BLM involved in it. It has uh, county officials involved in it, city officials, as the state agencies, um, and then environmental groups from Portland involved in it. And during the uh, occupation, the, the Bundys cut, uh, they had their, so they're part of the, the, it's to manage the water resources, the water shed and the habitat for the sage so. What they have done is the ranchers had fenced off critical areas of habitat for uh, for fish, and and for uh, waterfowl because it's on the flyway, and um, and so uh, the Bundys came in and and cut the wires to to let the cattle into the public lands there, and the uh, ranchers who are members of this collaborative, even though they may have agreed with many of the things that the occupiers were were saying and their policy preferences. They went right out there right away, got the cattle back onto their land and put the fence back up. And so it's just an example. And um, there's also another connection. One of the ranchers there who was the president of the Oregon Cattlemen's Association, he grows a uh, free range beef without antibiotics. And then he sells it to the Portland restaurants because he in Portland went from free range antibiotic. And so there's a connect, an economic connection has been made, but that's, and they get together, they have meetings, they don't have agreement on everything all the time, but they want, they all in the end want the same thing. And so, and you've got the anthropocentric and the biocentric perspectives that actually want the same uh, management at the end. They don't agree on necessarily in technique and stuff, but that's just, an example that we, we talk about.
0: Erica, do you have any other, other examples of, uh, of these tensions between these two kind of management systems or the way, the way in which maybe those tensions uh, could be overcome?
1: I mean, I think again, and I think Brent just stated it and we talked about it earlier. Like, I think that we have to get to a point where we encourage both dialogue and interaction. And you mentioned it as well with your example about people going down to bears ears. Like, I, I think that it's critical that we actually start talking to each other because that's where we start to identify our commonalities. That's where we start to like when when really great policy has been made, it has been made because of bipartisanship, because of people talking, because of things coming together. Um, and we have the ability to do that. We just need to kind of facilitate that again. Like how do we how do we start having a good conversation? Um, you know, similar to Brent, you know, my, in my in, in my family, you know, we certainly we were outside all of the time. And so I had that very strong sort of ethic and connection to land. But in my, you know, my in-laws are ones that grew up in a Midwest farm area. And certainly I politically identify differently. But in terms of connection to the land, and in terms of conservation of that land that they occupy, that's very important to them. So there is these like themes that just stick through this and we just need to kind of highlight those. And I think that we spend a great deal of time talking about our differences and exacerbating this notion that we're all so different, you know, we're we're in these two different camps and we don't have things that come together. But when you look at public opinion surveys, when you talk to people, these things, you do see this, this common thread that does connect a lot of the West. And I think that's what we need to start highlighting more. And that's what we need to start bringing together. And I think politicians can do that to to get to your point um, is is being able to start having, you know, greater conversations around around the commonalities that we all share.
0: I love that. Maybe that's like a good optimistic kind of note to to wrap things up on. It it also reminds me, uh, makes me think of this new um, Republican, caucus in the, I think it's just in the house that John Curtis was helping head up of GOP members talking about climate change, right? But it makes me hopeful that at some point, hopefully in the near future, more people will come to the table and say, hey, we actually have a lot that we agree on and that we can work on together because we all live here on this planet. We all live here and say, you know, if we're Westerners here in the West and these public lands are a great resource and we can probably find lots of things to agree on and how to manage them, use them, protect them, and so forth. Well, thank you for your time. This is uh, thank you for this uh, this great volume. I'm especially excited that it's open source, and I'll I'll point people to uh, to uh, to do it in print and online so they can sample from it and hopefully use it uh, for my professor friends using their classes, but also the general public. I think we'll find a lot in here that they'll they could benefit from well
1: thank you so much
0: yeah thank you so much all right it's been a pleasure take care guys you too well that's it for this month thank you so much for listening and i hope you'll subscribe please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through or follow us on facebook at writing westward podcast or twitter at writing west where you can get updates leave comments and communicate with me Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We are an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understanding of the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream. We have an annual funding cycle with awards, grants, fellowships in categories that nearly anyone researching and working on the region from nearly any disciplinary approach or towards nearly any kind of final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D center.byu.edu. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer, Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson. That's Anderson with an o, .com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Bren Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, just about everything else. So you can direct praise or critique my way. I'm the author and editor of a number of books uh, and other studies on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or just about anything else, head to bwrensink.org. That's b-w-r-e-n-s-i-n-k dot Or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensink. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind.